You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Vicksburg, Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy, by Donald L. Miller. Miller's Vicksburg is military history at its best. The author paints a superb picture, capturing the campaign's many twists and turns and all of its uncertainty and drama. At the heart of the story is Ulysses S. Grant, and Miller has drawn on original sources to create a richly revealing portrait of the general who engineered one of the most significant victories of the Civil War. The book takes a 360-degree view of this critical campaign not only analyzing strategy, but also looking at the social upheaval in the South that accompanied Union military advances and emancipation. Donald Miller's Vicksburg, Grant's campaign that broke the Confederacy, is available now in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. Order a copy now online, pick one up at your favorite bookstore, or look for it at your local library. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 299 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As you guys will recall, in the last show we looked at the important meeting that took place in Richmond on May 15, 1863 between Confederate President Jefferson Davis, Davis's Secretary of War, James Seddon, and General Robert E. Lee. We said that Lee would have gone to that conference with two goals. First, to resist the pressure to send troops from Virginia out west. And then, second, secure approval to, as Lee had put it, assume the aggressive, and take the war to the enemy with a strike north, across the Potomac, and into Pennsylvania. And Lee was successful on both counts, because he wouldn't have to send troops from his army out west and he could leave Richmond and return to his headquarters at Fredericksburg, confident that he had Davis's and Seddon's support for a strike north. So now, what we'd like to do with this show is look at Robert E. Lee's reasons for wanting to assume the aggressive, his reasons for wanting to march north into Maryland and Pennsylvania. Lee wrote two official reports on the Gettysburg Campaign, 
a preliminary after-action account on July 31, 1863, and a final report on January 20, 1864. In these documents, he summarized the five main objectives of his invasion of Pennsylvania. Goal number one, according to Lee, was to draw the Federal Army away from Fredericksburg and the Rappahannock River line. Goal number two was to take the initiative away from the Federals and disrupt any offensive plans the enemy commander, Joseph Hooker, might have had for the rest of the summer. Goal number three was to drive Union occupation forces out of Winchester and the lower Shenandoah Valley. Goal number four was to draw Federal forces away from other theaters to reinforce Hooker. And goal number five was to take the armies out of war-ravaged Virginia and to provide the Army of Northern Virginia with food, forage, horses, and other supplies from the rich agricultural countryside of Pennsylvania. As our favorite Civil War historian James McPherson points out, if Lee's goals were indeed limited to those five objectives, then the Gettysburg Campaign was a Confederate success, since Lee did seize the initiative from Hooker. And Lee did draw Hooker away from the Rappahannock and disrupt any possible Union offensive in Virginia for the rest of the summer. The campaign did clear the lower Shenandoah Valley of enemy troops and, in fact, captured some 4,000 of them. And during the three or four weeks the Army of Northern Virginia was in Pennsylvania, it lived very well off the enemy's countryside. More than that, the Confederates seized enough food and forage and animals in the Keystone State to keep the army supplied for months to come. The fifth objective Lee mentioned was achieved with qualified success since the only federal forces drawn off from elsewhere were five brigades from the Washington defenses although after the battle some Union forces were shifted from the southern Atlantic coast to reinforce the Army of the Potomac. So really, as James McPherson points out, the implication in Lee's reports is that his goals in the Gettysburg campaign were limited and were largely achieved. So he could therefore declare, mission accomplished. Hmm, okay, well... So it's probably not surprising that Lee, in his official reports, would say that, right? I mean, he wouldn't come right out and say, Yep, I marched north with sweeping goals, but suffered a terrible defeat that shattered my hopes for a war-winning victory on northern soil. Instead of saying that, the picture Lee painted in his official reports was that a smashing victory over the Army of the Potomac would have been a nice bonus, but it wasn't the main goal of the march up into Pennsylvania. The spin Lee chose to put on it was that the enemy's success at Gettysburg was merely defensive, and the Army of Northern Virginia got away with its spoils and lived to fight another day. As you can probably tell, we don't think Robert E. Lee was being entirely truthful in his official reports, when he didn't admit to having any ambitious purpose for his invasion of Pennsylvania. In fact, in those reports, he appears not to have told the whole truth, because there's a considerable amount of evidence that he had more sweeping goals for his strike north than he described.
Now, some of you probably felt your blood pressure start to rise as we were talking about Lee in his official reports, not telling the whole truth about his goals for the Gettysburg campaign. After all, talking smack about John B. Floyd is one thing, but don't mess with Robert E. Lee up there on his pedestal, right? Well, so we will say that to doubt Lee here doesn't mean we're necessarily questioning his integrity, because we think he told the truth in his reports, but we also think he didn't tell the whole truth. That's because we believe Robert E. Lee went north looking to strike a knockout blow against the Army of the Potomac. And we'll explain why we think that. Remember, context is everything, so in that regard, we need to understand that there was a fundamental assumption that underlay Robert E. Lee's military strategy, not only during the Gettysburg campaign, but also in the war as a whole. You see, from his correspondence, we know that Lee believed the North's greater population and more abundant resources would make Union victory inevitable in a prolonged contest if the Northern people had the will to continue the war. To Lee's way of thinking, once hostilities commenced in April 1861, an hourglass had been set on end, and from that moment on, its sands ran relentlessly against the Confederacy. Lee knew that based on the raw mathematics, the South didn't have the resources, that is, the men, money, or manufacturing capacity, to support an overly long war. Based on the raw mathematics, Lee knew that the North possessed the resources, the men, money, and manufacturing capacity, to defeat the Confederacy, if the North also had the determination and endurance to apply its advantages. Because time was against the South, the only way the Confederacy could achieve its independence, could offset the North's advantages, was to act with a sense of urgency to avoid a prolonged war, and that urgency would manifest itself in seizing the initiative in military operations whenever it was at all possible to do so. In short, Robert E. Lee thought the only way the Confederacy could win the war was to score battlefield victories while the South still had the strength to do so. Battlefield victories that would, if possible, cripple the enemy's main army in the East and demoralize the Northern people to the point they became convinced that continuing the struggle wasn't worth the cost in lives and treasure they were paying to try to bring the South back into the Union. From the moment he took command of the Army of Northern Virginia, Robert E. Lee sought opportunities to land a knockout blow against the enemy. For example, after driving McClellan away from the gates of Richmond and back to the James River in the Seven Days Battles, Lee didn't sit back and enjoy his victory, but instead he expressed frustration, saying that, quote, Our success has not been as great or as complete as I could have desired. Under ordinary circumstances, the Federal Army should have been destroyed. In fact, once he took command of the Army of Northern Virginia, Lee's correspondence used words such as destroy, ruin, crush, and wipe out when discussing the most desirable fate for Union forces. But in the spring of 1863, after almost a year in command, such a grand Napoleonic victory 
still eluded him. Significantly, in the Antietam and Gettysburg campaigns, Lee linked his military objectives to proposals for parallel political initiatives as a kind of dual-track approach, or one-two punch, designed to achieve the goal of Confederate independence. After his victory at Second Manassas, Lee believed the enemy army was, quote, much weakened and demoralized, as he wrote to Jefferson Davis. Lee believed that moment was the time to give them the knockout blow, which was a major reason he transitioned almost immediately into an invasion of Maryland, which led to the Battle of Antietam. It's well documented that Lee was an avid reader of northern newspapers smuggled across the lines. From them, he gleaned not only bits of military intelligence, but also, and more important in this case, information about northern politics and the growing disillusionment with the war among Democrats and despair among many Republicans. One of Lee's purposes in invading Maryland on the heels of his victory at Second Manassas was to intensify this northern demoralization in advance of the congressional elections in the fall of 1862. He hoped that Confederate success would encourage anti-war candidates. If Democrats could gain control of the House of Representatives, it might cripple the Lincoln administration's ability to carry on the war. Lee outlined his ideas along these lines in a September 8, 1862 letter to Jefferson Davis, about a week and a half before the Battle of Antietam. Even after the brutal bloodletting at Antietam, the desire to influence the northern elections was one reason Lee gave for seriously considering an attempt to resume the campaign in Maryland, despite his army's terrible losses. However, in the end, Lee decided that hitting the enemy again at that time just wasn't possible, given the condition of his army after Antietam. Well, Democrats did make significant gains in the 1862 congressional elections, although Republicans managed to retain control of Congress. But morale in the Army of the Potomac and among the northern public plunged to rock bottom in the early months of 1863 after the disaster at Fredericksburg, the fiasco of the Mud March, and the failure of Grant's initial efforts to accomplish anything at Vicksburg. Anti-war Democrats in the North were self-described as peace Democrats, but they were branded by Republicans as treasonable copperheads, and in the early months of 1863, as victory on the battlefield continued to elude Union armies, the copperheads became more outspoken and politically powerful than ever. Thanks to his reading of Northern newspapers, Lee followed these developments closely, and in February 1863, he secretly ordered Stonewall Jackson's mapmaker, Jedediah Hotchkiss, to draw detailed maps of south-central Pennsylvania, from the Cumberland Valley over to Harrisburg, and all the way east to Philadelphia. One can assume Lee didn't give Hotchkiss this assignment just because he liked to read maps. About this time, Lee also read in Northern Papers of George McClellan's testimony to a congressional committee 
about the finding of Lee's Special Orders No. 191 in the Antietam Campaign. For Lee, this solved the mystery about why Little Mac had moved more quickly and aggressively than Lee had anticipated. Stephen Sears suggests that this eye-opening revelation may have convinced Lee that only an unlucky accident had frustrated his ambitious goals for the first invasion of the North. It would be natural for Lee to think that with better luck, he might succeed on the second try. By April 1863, Lee was beginning to plan that second invasion. Lee informed Jefferson Davis that now was the time to assume the aggressive, to strike again with another march north across the Potomac, which would force the enemy army into the open where Lee could smash it and cause northern public opinion to sink even further. In a letter to his wife on April 19th, Lee said, quote, If successful this year, next fall there will be a great change in public opinion at the North. The Republicans will be destroyed, and I think the friends of peace will become so strong that the next administration will go in on that basis. End quote. Well, here Lee was anticipating Confederate battlefield success by the Army of Northern Virginia in 1863 would not only fuel anti-war sentiment in the North, but would exert a strong influence on the 1864 presidential election. This was a bold, strategic vision, and obviously one that wasn't limited to a mere raid to take the armies out of Virginia and obtain supplies. No, Lee was going to take the war north a second time, and this time he'd strike a knockout blow against the enemy army, a blow that would lead to Confederate independence. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off. An eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. 
In the spring of 1863, before Robert E. Lee could begin to implement his vision for taking the war north again, Hooker struck first on the Rappahannock. But as y'all know, Lee reacted quickly and boldly to counter Hooker's flank march. Faced with this unexpected development, Hooker lost his nerve, got bogged down in the wilderness, and allowed Lee to seize the initiative. Then, after Stonewall Jackson's famous march and flank attack, Hooker was hunkered down in entrenchments north of Chancellorsville on May 5th. Robert E. Lee intended to throw his knockout punch right there before Hooker could get back over the river, but he ended up bitterly disappointed when the Federals slipped away that night. Even as they mourned Stonewall Jackson's death, Southerners nevertheless celebrated Chancellorsville as a great victory. But to Robert E. Lee, it was another empty triumph. Hooker had escaped back across the Rappahannock, just as Burnside had done the previous December. That meant the enemy had lived to fight another day, and it also meant the two armies were left right back where they had started, once again confronting each other across the Rappahannock, even as the sand in the Confederacy's hourglass continued to drain away, grain by grain. Lee believed if the war was ever to be won, 1863 was the year, The Confederacy would only get weaker and the North stronger if the conflict went on much longer. It was in this context that Pennsylvania beckoned. There, the Army of Northern Virginia would find plentiful food and forage, and Robert E. Lee was confident he'd find the opportunity to maneuver Hooker into a position where Lee could fight him to advantage. Lee had taken Hooker's measure at Chancellorsville, where he'd utterly dominated the federal commander, tactically and psychologically. And so, in contemplating embarking on a new campaign, Robert E. Lee was no doubt supremely confident he would best Hooker again if given the chance. Even before Chancellorsville, Lee had referred to his opponent with thinly-veiled contempt as Mr. F.J. Hooker, which was a sarcastic reference to Hooker's Fighting Joe nickname in the Northern press. Lee not only held his opponent, Mr. F.J. Hooker, in contempt, but as he told one of his own generals, he believed his own army to be, quote, invincible. They will go anywhere and do anything if properly led, end quote. Well, proper leadership after Stonewall Jackson's death and other recent officer casualties was a problem, to be sure. And, as we'll see, before setting out on the new campaign, Lee would reorganize his army into three corps rather than the previous two. However, with regard to the head of the army, Lee himself, the Battle of Chancellorsville, where he'd won an astonishing victory against formidable odds, had simply confirmed his reputation as the Confederacy's premier field commander. Chancellorsville also completed the process by which the Army of Northern Virginia became almost fanatically devoted to Lee. You guys will remember the remarkable, dramatic scene in the clearing at Chancellorsville on the evening of May 3rd, as Lee guided Traveler through thousands of cheering Confederate soldiers all shouting their devotion to their beloved chieftain. 
There's no doubt that if Lee believed his army to be invincible, the soldiers of that army returned his trust in spades. They had complete confidence that if Lee were leading them, victory was assured. It's often overlooked in accounts of the Gettysburg Campaign, but just as he had done during the invasion of Maryland the previous September, Robert E. Lee here, again, offered some political advice to Jefferson Davis. And the advice was consistent with Lee's underlying belief that a crushing military victory would make it possible for Richmond to extract a peace agreement from the federal government, a peace agreement that would recognize Confederate independence. Lee's reading of Northern newspapers had convinced him that the rising peace party in the North, as he described the Copperheads, offered the South a, quote, means of dividing and weakening our enemies. Obviously, dividing and weakening Northern public opinion could only benefit the Confederates. So in a June 10th letter to Davis, Lee pointed out that it would do no harm to encourage the Copperhead's desire for peace negotiations. After all, Lee said, anything that weakened Northern support for the war would be welcome and, quote, is what we are interested in bringing about. Lee concluded his letter by saying he trusted that Davis would know how to best implement his, Lee's, views. And Jefferson Davis did indeed think he knew a way to offer the olive branch of negotiated peace to Washington at the same time that Lee's sword won a battlefield victory on northern soil. You see, about the time Davis received Lee's letter, he also opened one from Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens. James McPherson says that Stevens had written to Davis, quote, suggesting a mission to Washington under a flag of truce. The ostensible purpose would be a negotiation to renew the cartel for prisoner of war exchanges, which had broken down because of the Confederate threat to execute or re-enslave captured officers and men of the Union's black regiments. But the real purpose of the mission would be negotiation of a peace on the basis of Confederate independence. Davis immediately summoned Stevens from Georgia to Richmond with the intention of sending him to Pennsylvania with the Army to start negotiations after Lee won a military victory. But Alexander Stevens arrived in Richmond too late to catch up with Lee, and he protested that the enemy would never receive him anyway if he accompanied the Army So Davis sent him under a flag of truce into Union lines down at Fort Monroe at the tip of the peninsula, where he arrived on July 2nd. Two days later, on the 4th of July, a telegram arrived in Washington notifying Abraham Lincoln of Stevens' desire to meet with him. By then, however, Lincoln had heard the news from Gettysburg, and knowing that Lee had suffered a defeat there, Lincoln sent back a message saying he would not meet with the Confederate vice president. And so Alexander Stevens went back to Georgia, and his failed peace mission faded into the footnotes of history. 
In this show, we wanted to look at Robert E. Lee's reasons for invading Pennsylvania in the summer of 1863. In a future episode, we'll talk more about the logistical concerns that prompted Lee to want to get his army out of war-ravaged Central Virginia. But for right now, we'll just say that, in fact, all through the winter of 1862-63, the army at Fredericksburg had suffered severe shortages of food and supplies for its men and fodder for its horses and mules. And an invasion of Pennsylvania would take Lee's army to a region, heretofore untouched by war, where it could obtain critical supplies of foodstuffs and fodder. In addition, clearing the lower Shenandoah Valley of Federals, another of Lee's stated goals, would also allow the army to gather supplies from that fertile district, known as the breadbasket of the Confederacy. Another of Lee's stated goals was breaking up the enemy's plan for a summer campaign in Virginia, and the best way to disrupt the enemy's plans, Lee believed, was if he seized the initiative, that is, if he assumed the aggressive and marched north so that the Federal Army would have to follow him. Moreover, luring the Army of the Potomac out of Virginia would give the people of Lee's home state a much-needed break from the ravages of war and give the farmers of central Virginia a chance to harvest their crops while the armies were gone from the scene. So, in that regard, marching north would kill two birds with one stone. It would disrupt the enemy's plan for a summer campaign, and it would give the people of central Virginia a much-needed respite from the hard hand of war. So, okay, all of that's to say that there are Lee's stated goals for the Pennsylvania campaign. But we keep coming back to Lee's unstated reason for marching north, because we think he went into Pennsylvania fully anticipating that at some point he would have the opportunity to deliver a killing blow to the Army of the Potomac. Remember, Lee had taken his opponent's measure at Chancellorsville and was not impressed with Mr. F.J. Hooker's abilities. On the other hand, Robert E. Lee had supreme confidence in himself and his army. At Fredericksburg the previous December, Lee had beaten the enemy easily, but had been left frustrated when the defeated Federals had then slipped away, back across the Rappahannock. At Chancellorsville, he had beaten them again, less easily that time, although against longer odds. But Lee was once more left bitterly disappointed when the enemy once again slipped away across the river. And so, we believe Lee marched into Pennsylvania looking for a third battle, one that would result in a victory of real consequence. Really, the long and the short of it is that we think Robert E. Lee marched north into Pennsylvania in the summer of 1863 because... Yes, he wanted to take the war out of Virginia because, yes, he had legitimate, even desperate logistical problems. But we think that Robert E. Lee marched north into Pennsylvania mainly because he was looking for a battlefield victory of real consequence. We think Lee assumed the aggressive and moved north into the Keystone State because he believed it gave his long-shot cause its best chance for winning the war. 
We want to point out that we think Robert E. Lee's audacity or aggressiveness reflected more than a personality trait. We think there's plenty of evidence to show that his decision to adopt an offensive strategy was rooted in his reasoned assessment of how the Confederacy could achieve victory over a numerically superior opponent with unlimited resources. He understood that ultimate victory, that is a peace settlement that led to Confederate independence, could be obtained not militarily, but politically. And politically speaking, Lee realized that the real question in 1863 was the Northern will to continue the fight. If that will endured, the Confederacy faced certain defeat. If breaking the North's will to continue the fight was at the heart of the matter, then Lee saw the offensive as the only course, militarily, that could possibly achieve the South's independence. Lee could clearly see that to adopt a passive, defensive posture meant a slow death. Lee chose to assume the aggressive with its attendant risks because it allowed him to dictate operations, allowed him to retain the initiative. And this was important because with the initiative would come opportunity, opportunity to win a battlefield victory of real consequence, one that would go a long way toward breaking the enemy's will to continue the war. A smashing Confederate victory on northern soil just might, perhaps, be the tipping point, just might be the straw that broke the camel's back and convinced the North that the sacrifices, casualties, and defeats weren't worth it, and that peace should be made with the Confederacy. So at the end of this episode, we want to return to our question, what brought those 165,000 soldiers to Gettysburg? the first three days of July, 1863. And ultimately, for us, the answer to that question is found in the strategy of Robert E. Lee. In his pursuit of a victory of real consequence, Lee guided his army to a fork in the road and then led it down the route no other Southern general dared to take. And he did it because he believed it gave his long-shot cause its best chance for winning the war. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Reading the Man, a Portrait of Robert E. Lee Through His Private Letters by Elizabeth Brown Pryor. When we get to the point in the story arc where George Meade is ordered to take command of the Army of the Potomac, we plan on spending some time giving a bit of an extended biographical sketch of him, since, well, since we really haven't talked about Meade in any detail on the podcast. We have, however, talked about Robert E. Lee already, quite a bit. In fact, we devoted an entire show, back with episode number 40, to Lee's life story, so we encourage you to go back and listen to that show if you're so inclined. Anyway, our book recommendation for this episode, Reading the Man by Elizabeth Brown Pryor, is a re-recommendation of what we think is far and away the most insightful, 
thought-provoking biography of Lee on our bookshelf. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then as we wrap up the show, we want to be sure to give a shout-out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Bob, Judy, and Tandy, Sergio, John, and Sterling, and Jonathan, Andrew, and Jason. And thanks to Sue T. at Civil War Cycling for her donation and lovely note. Thanks, Sue. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time when we'll look at some big changes Lee made to his army before embarking on the new campaign. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hey everyone, just a reminder that this episode of the podcast was sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Vicksburg, Grant's Campaign That Broke the Confederacy, by Donald L. Miller. We're happy to team up with Simon & Schuster to promote this excellent book by a great author. You'll definitely want to have a copy of it on your Civil War bookshelf. Donald Miller's Vicksburg, Grant's Campaign That Broke the Confederacy, is available now in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook.